A reading from the Book of Kings. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The word of the Lord. Well, it's my joy to welcome an old friend back to the Daniel Island Fellowship this morning. Um, she's following me up here because she doesn't want to say a lot uh, about her. But some of you know Erin Clifford. Erin is an old friend of our church. Um, she serves as the Director of Missional and Spiritual Formation at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, what does that mean? We don't really know other than she actually uh, brings together pastors and Christian leaders from around the globe so they can do cohorts together and grow deeper with God and one another to avoid burnout. Prior to that, she was on the executive team for International Justice Mission, a group that seeks to end slavery around the globe and has freed over 49,000 slaves to date. And prior to that, when I met Erin, she was a curate uh, over with Nikki Gumbel at Holy Trinity Brompton and a professor of preaching at the largest Anglican seminary in the world, known as St. Melitus. 
but to us, she's just a good friend to our church. So welcome back, Erin Clifford. Can we give her a round of applause? Okay. Uh, it's great to be back with you all. Um, it's, uh, I tend to come back to Daniel Island once, twice a year. Uh, the last time I was here was October, speaking at the women's retreat, uh, the first ever Daniel Island women's retreat, and I was so privileged to get to be the speaker, and there are some fun women in this church. There really are. Uh, so I was really privileged to be there, and really happy to be back and visiting uh, with you all. Uh, speaking of moms, Happy Mother's Day uh, to all the ones who have biological kids, adopted kids, spiritual kids, God kids, whatever you've got. Um, thank you to all the women in the room that nurture, comfort, uh, encourage others. Uh, we celebrate all of you this morning. Um, and congrats, Coco. It's Coco, Coco, go. Congrats, Coco, wherever you are, in the spirit. Um, you know what's so cool about a baptism and welcoming a child into the covenant of God is, you know, Coco has something that the kingdom needs. Coco has something that only Coco can bring to the kingdom and can bring to the body of Christ. Each one of us has something that God created us for because only we could do that. And only we display the image of God in the, in the way that he's created us to. Coco's going to show us some of what God is just by uh, being herself. Um, so welcome, Coco, into the body of Christ. Um, so today we're going to be looking at uh, a concept in Scripture. Normally, as Paul said, I love teaching the Bible. I love, I'm normally kind of up here theologically, and you've probably experienced that when I've come here and taught before. I make you think real hard. Um, but today I'm going to talk more about uh, a theme through Scripture. It is a theology. It is a perspective, but it's across different parts of Scripture. And it's this idea of guarding our hearts. Guarding our hearts. And again, because it's Mother's Day, you might be like, oh, we're talking about the heart. It's Mother's Day. Or like, you know, this is a, a preacher. She happens to be female. So she's probably talking about emotions and stuff like that. Um, but that's not what we're talking about today. So like take the picture you have of like hearts being all about emotions and love. Maybe you have like a home is where the heart is up in your house. And that's cool. Um, you know, that's good. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about heart. The Bible has a much fuller theological meaning when it talks about the heart. So we're going to look at this concept of guarding our hearts through the story of Elijah. Because actually, Elijah, he did some stuff great, and then he kind of did some stuff not so great. And aren't we thankful? Aren't we thankful for people in Scripture that follow God, and yet they also mess up? Because that's humanness. That's the brokenness of the world. That's part of who we are, and that's also why we need desperately the grace of God. And so we're thankful for the cross for that reason as well. So here's Elijah. He had been in the chapter before, which we didn't read, but if you were to go back in the chapter before, you'd see that he had killed all the prophets, okay? So um, people were not happy about that. And Jezebel, in the beginning of this chapter, as we read, she says, I'm coming after you, Elijah. I'm going to do to you what you did to them. So Elijah is running. He's afraid. He's running for his life. He runs towards the desert. He leaves his servant. He goes into the desert. He goes into a cave. And I love this story because I actually think it's one of the few times in Scripture where we see someone who was actually depressed. And I think a lot of times in the church, in Christian circles, there's a real stigma around mental health issues. But our mind is just as important as our body. And again, the brokenness of the world means we also have sickness. And we also have things like mental health struggles and issues. So here's Elijah, and he says, I'd like to die. And he says, you know, what have I really done, basically, for you, God? 
So he's having this sort of identity moment. He's having this depression moment. And I like that that's actually included in Scripture. Because a lot of times we feel as Christians we're not supposed to struggle like that. But that's just untrue. Uh, That is untrue and unfair uh, to ourselves to be thinking that way. So I like that we're actually seeing a moment of darkness here. Psalm, uh, or Proverbs 4 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Or some translations say, out of it flow the wellsprings of life. Above all else, it says. Above all else. Above anything else you might think to do in your spiritual life, it says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Wow, so this must be a really important concept for us in Scripture. And in fact, the word heart appears hundreds of times in Scripture. Hundreds of times. So it must be important to God and thus to us. So what does the Bible mean when it says heart? Well, as I said, it's not just including the emotions, although it does include that. This is a much longer theological conversation, which I will let Paul preach on sometime. Um, But Scripture talks about us having three parts. We've got our spirit, our soul, and our body. Okay, our spirit, our soul, and our body. The body's the obvious one. It's our physical body, which we have, which is a gift from God for us to steward. We only get one of those, so we want to take care of it. So that's our body. But we've also got our spirit, and we've got our soul. And when scripture talks about the soul, this middle part, it's talking about three things. It's talking about your mind, your emotions, and your will. And for most of us, we tend to to work out of one of these centers, our mind, our emotions, or our will. Some people in here, you're thinking people. And everything you do is from a logical perspective, and you're thinking, this is what I think is best to do, so this is what I'm going to do. And you work out of that mind part of yourself. Uh, she's shaking her head. No, I don't. The second is emotions. Maybe some of you are work more from your emotions, your feelings. And this is the psyche part that the scripture talks about. And we know this is basics of psychology as well, which is awesome. It's also in scripture. Uh, so the second part is your emotions. And this is what we think of when the Bible says heart. We typically just go straight. Oh, it's talking about feelings. But that would be to really minimize the, the beauty of the theological truth of heart in Scripture. So emotions is the next one. And a lot of people, you may walk out of that. You may work out of your emotional center. And you make decisions by your emotions. I feel this way or I feel this way. And lastly, your will. Your will, or I like to say your gut. Maybe you're a gut person. You make decisions by instinct. You just kind of know what's right and wrong. You just kind of do it. You act out of your gut, your will. That's where you, uh, where you bring your purpose from. So that is all contained in your soul. So when scripture talks about the heart, it's including all of that. It's including your mind, your emotions, your will, and it's also including a part of your spirit, which is your conscience. So these are the parts that it means when it says heart. So when it says above all else, guard your heart, it's saying guard your mind, guard your emotions, guard your will, guard your conscience. So let me show you where this shows up. So the first place, Matthew 9 Matthew 9, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? So Jesus is kind of drawing this conclusion of the mind is also part of the heart. We're thinking with our heart. Acts 11, who, when he had arrived, saw the grace of God, rejoiced, and encouraged them all to remain with the Lord with purpose of heart. And when scripture says purpose, it typically means will. So with with a part of their hearts, they were willing something to happen. That was sort of, that's that uh, gut part that I was talking about, purpose of heart. Then in John 16, therefore you also now have sorrow, this is Jesus, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice 
and no one takes your joy away from you. So we rejoice with our emotions. So that's the part that we expected to be a part of when scripture talked about the heart, the emotional side. And then Hebrews 10, let us come forward to the holy of holies with a true heart. Okay, so this is also about how we approach God. Our heart is integral somehow in how we worship and praise and approach God. With a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So there's something about our heart that includes our conscience, how we know what is right and what is wrong. And in fact, we're told that our heart in Mark 12, you shall love the Lord your God from your whole heart. So again, sometimes we read that love the Lord your God with all your heart and we think love the Lord your God through your emotions, but it's actually loving the Lord with your mind, with your emotions, with your will, with your conscience. I have a, I'm doing a doctorate right now on the side, and I am late with one of my papers. Confessions. And I was talking to my professor the other day, and he was getting off the phone with me. He was sort of encouraging me to keep going with this uh, dissertation I'm working on. And he ended the phone call by saying, Aaron, worship God with your mind. Go forth and worship God with your mind. I thought, oh, that's a really helpful way to think about that, that when we use our mind, even when we use our will and we make decisions, we can worship God that way with that part of us. That's all a part of this heart that we're meant to love the Lord our God with our entire part of it. Scripture also talks about the heart being the gateway of our lives. So the heart is the place in which we open up to God when we hear the gospel, when we sense God's love for us, when we sense what it really means to be forgiven completely and to have new mercies every morning. That's our heart engaging with God. That's the way God sort of enters in. But the heart also is the back door of our lives as well. And when stuff comes in the front, what comes in the front often goes back out through our mouths, through our decisions. So scripture is telling us to guard our hearts because it's sort of this gateway to our soul, and to our relationship with God. Now, when it says guard your hearts, it must mean that there's something coming against us, right? So why would you guard against anything if there's nothing that you're fighting? So guard your hearts. Who are we guarding it from? Scripture again and again says that we're guarding it from the evil one, from the enemy, from Satan. And one of the names for the enemy in Scripture is the father of lies. And often when scripture talks about our hearts, it also talks about this idea of lies, lies that are coming at us about who God is, about who we are. This enemy of lies, this, uh, this Satan, it's his favorite thing to say to us things like, did God really say, that was his first question, you know, in Genesis to Adam and Eve, did God really say, and I think he does that in our lives all the time, did God really say he'd be there for you? Did God really say that he'd give you life to the full? Did God really say that you're made for a purpose? He loves to ask that question. He loves to bring in lies, and we can't fight those lies if we don't guard our hearts. So I love this picture of guarding. It's like in boxing. Does anyone in here box? Anyone in here box? Oh, good. So then I look like a boxer to you. Okay. So this is, so let, you know when you're, the idea of boxing is that you are also guarding yourself. And the idea in boxing is to keep your hands up right? Because someone's coming at you. You never want to let your hands fall because when you let your hands fall, your face is susceptible. And that's like the number one place that you don't want to get hit. So you keep your hands up. You guard. You keep your hands up. Well, I like to think of that in our, like, our proverbial, our spiritual hands up so that they don't fall. But sometimes our hands fall. Sometimes it's hard to guard our hearts. 
And it can be for multiple reasons. Sometimes it's because we're going through a season where we've just been punched in the stomach so many times. Life has just hit us over and over and over and over again, and we're exhausted and we let our guard down. Sometimes we get hit because we've actually been in a hard season, but we think we're coming out of it. And so we let our guards down. Sometimes we're in a season where um, we're in loss. So maybe we've lost someone we really care about, and we let our guard down. Sometimes we're in a season of loneliness, and we let our guard down. I think about uh, this, this term I learned even as a young Christian, uh, when you face temptation, to think about the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Often when we uh, face temptation, it's helpful to halt, to stop, and to think about what's really going on with us. Are we hungry? <laughs> you know, we do a lot of things out of hunger, don't we? I don't know about you. I'm very susceptible to hunger. Um, so are we hungry? Are we just feeling desperate in our bodies? Angry. Are we actually mad at something else or someone else or God and we're, and we're about to act out? Lonely. Are we just lonely and looking for comfort from people, from things in the world? And lastly, tired. Are we just exhausted? Sometimes my mom had this phrase, speaking of Mother's Day, I just called her between services. Uh, sometimes my mom had this phrase when something, when we'd be all kind of, you know, wound up as girls, there were four girls, um, she would say, honey, you're just tired. <laughs> Whoo, I didn't like to hear that. That was not one of my favorite her phrases, but I remember it now as an adult and it's true. Sometimes I'm just tired, and that's why I'm about to make that terrible decision or whatever it is. So is our guard coming down? Are we hungry, angry, lonely, tired? Are we just in one of those seasons? So how do we keep our guard up? How do we, above all else, as Scripture encourages, exactly, above all else, <laughs> guard your heart? So the first thing, and I'm going to get super practical with you here. The first thing is, don't underestimate the power of a nap and a good meal. <laughs> Again, as my mom would say, you're just tired or you're just hungry. Don't underestimate the power of a nap or a good meal. So Elijah, before he, uh, before he met with God, he was asleep, right? And the angel woke him up. And what did the angel do? The angel fed him. The angel gave him food, and then he went back to sleep. And in fact, there's multiple times in this chapter where you see him being fed, and you see him sleeping, and then you see the angel saying, you need to eat. You've got a long journey. You're not ready for this yet. There's something to be said for a nap and a good meal. Taking care of our bodies is very biblical. In the New Testament, this was one of the great heresies, was this separation of the body and the spirit. We don't believe in that as followers of Jesus. We believe the body and the spirit are together, that God inhabits all of us, and that we're meant to take care of it. Sometimes when our guard is coming down, we literally need to just take care of our physical health. I saw a sign the other day as I walked out of a store. It said, treat your body like it's the only one you have. <laughs> treat, because it is. It's the only one you have. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Um, Maya Angelou said this, I think when we don't know what to do, it's wise to do nothing. <laughs> Sometimes it's just wise to stop and take care of yourself for a little while. In fact, in depression, three of the things that can be the most helpful for us in a season of depression are actually the three things we don't want to do, the things we least want to do. The first one I would say would be exercise. When you're going through a season of depression, it's often just hard to get out of bed, let alone put on a pair of tennis shoes and go for a walk or a run or something like that. And sometimes people can tell they're in a season of depression because they used to be active and they don't feel like doing those same things anymore. But exercise, moving your body can be one of the best things for you 
when you're going through a season like that. The second thing is food. Often when we're going through a depression, the last thing we want to eat is healthy food. <laughs> but when we're depressed, our chemistry is all off inside of our body, and what we need are healthy foods to help balance that out. But, you know, the, the first thing I want is just a bunch of Cheetos, you know? <laughs> that's not actually going to help me. I need to eat a salad, but that's the last thing that I want to eat. Lastly, uh, community. You know, when we're depressed, we often isolate ourselves. In fact, someone once said to me, that's the definition of depression is isolation. We want to hide under the covers. We want to hide ourselves in our room. In fact, you can tell often with people that you care about that they're going through a dark time because you haven't heard from them, right? They're not texting. They're not calling. They're not making social plans anymore. But that's actually one of the number one things that can help someone if that's going through a depression is community, is vulnerability with someone about what they're struggling with. But it's the opposite of what we want to do. So when we're going through these times to help guard our heart, don't estimate the power of a nap and a good meal. Secondly, check under the house. Check under the house. Recognize what's going on inside of you. Kind of that halt question. It's a moment to stop and think, are any of these things driving me more right now? Do I, have I lost control over myself because of any of these things? I'm currently in the process of buying a house, which I'm so excited about. I live in Washington, DC. I don't know if we said that or not. Um, and I'm buying a house, I'm so excited. And it's my first house. And we just had the inspection. Now the house is, was built in 1900. So the inspection could have gone any direction, right? Because that's an old house. So we weren't sure what was going to be under the house or inside the walls of the house. Uh, but we went to the, had the inspection. And when the inspector, the people are still living in the house. And so uh, we were there that day. All their stuff is still there. The inspector, we went to the backyard. And there's a deck. And he went underneath the deck. There's a crawl space. And first of all, I remember thinking, ooh, inspectors, that's not an easy job, you know? He's down in the mud crawling underneath this house. But when he opened up the gate to the crawl space, like 20 mosquitoes flew out, okay? Now, you all are like, 20 mosquitoes, that's, that's five minutes, you know, in, uh, in Charleston. Um, for us in D.C. in May, that's a lot of mosquitoes to see. That's not normal. So all these mosquitoes came out, and I was like, ooh, that's kind of gross, you know. And he went crawling under there. And when he came back out, he told me what he had found. He had found four big plastic bins, like the kind you get at Costco or something, that have the lids on top that have a little bit of a, a hole in the top of the lid, like a bowl and it was holding standing water. So four big tubs, lids holding standing water, and that's where all these mosquitoes were breeding. So he said, Aaron, you're gonna wanna get rid of these, of these tubs and this standing water. Now, if he hadn't gone under there, if he hadn't inspected it, I could have spent days out there on that porch just getting eaten alive and having no idea why. Just over and over again, getting bitten and going, what is going on? Checking under the house. Checking under the house helps guard our hearts. And this is what God says to Elijah. God says to Elijah, what are you doing, Elijah? I mean, it wasn't that complicated, God, what Elijah was doing. He was running, he was hiding in a cave, and he was eating and sleeping. You know, so what did God mean when he asked him, what are you doing, Elijah? Well, he's actually asking him, what's really going on in your heart? What are you doing? Why are you running for your life? Why are you hiding? Why do you think that it's better to die than to live, as he had just said? Why do you think that you're all alone and you've been left to die? What are you doing, Elijah? Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, what are we believing? What is the lie that we're believing more than the truth of God? Maybe it's that God's finished with me. He's given up on me. There's no more for me to do in the kingdom. I'm not like Coco. I don't have some great dream God has for me. I've passed my expiration date. 
Maybe we're believing I've done too much. I've walked away too much from God to be useful from, to God again. These are all lies. But we need to check under the house to clean out the places that these breed so that we can really hear the truth of who God is and who we are in God. Number three, keep one foot in the water. Keep one foot in the water. And by water, I mean God's presence. So seals, not the like art kind, but like military seals, um, special forces seals. Um, seals, as you may know, are special forces. They're particularly trained for combat, both in the water and on land. But if you read in the sort of seal manual or a definition of them, you'll see that they always know where the water is. Because their strategic advantage is their ability to, to go back into the water, to disappear into the water. So whenever a seal is anywhere, they always know how far they are from the water, how quickly they can get back to the water. Because the water is their strategic advantage. The water is where their power comes from. The water is what gives them victory at any turn, in any battle, no matter the size. So they keep one foot always near the water. For us, as followers of Jesus, the water is the presence of God. The presence of God is where any power over any battle in our lives exists. And in fact, when we talk about the, the enemy and the lies and arrows of the enemy, we don't actually have to be afraid. And I think that's part of what God is asking Elijah in that moment. Why are you afraid, Elijah? You just saw me completely wipe out the prophets that were against God. You've seen all these miracles. You don't have to be afraid. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You have no reason to fear. You don't have to be afraid, but you want to be smart. And that's why you keep your guard up. Not because you're afraid, but because you're wise. So the presence of God is where our power, that's our strategic advantage as those who follow Jesus. And the presence of God is around us, with us all the time. This is the miracle. If you're in Christ this morning, and if you're not, I highly recommend it. But if you're in Christ this morning, you have the presence of God with you 24-7 inside you all the time. And this is really amazing. This is amazing. When I get to heaven, I'm super excited to talk to all kinds of biblical people, biblical kind of, you know, men and women from the Bible. But one of them I really want to talk to is Moses. Because Moses knew the presence of God to be something that moved around. He had to follow it, right? He followed the bush, he followed the fire, always following the presence of God. In fact, fearing that the presence of God wouldn't go with him as he went into the promised land. He was like, Jesus, I'm not going in there if you're not coming with me. The presence wasn't something that was always there. Even in the New Testament, before the cross, the presence of God was in a building, right? It was in the temple. You had to walk for days and days. I mean, some of you can't even get to church without coffee, right? <laughs> but back then, they had to walk for days and days and days to get to the people and the presence of God. But now, through the cross, we have the presence with us all the time. And I can't wait to tell Moses, because I feel like he's going to be like, you know, he's just going to be like, mind blown. You have the presence of God with you all the time? That's amazing. So like seals, we got to keep one foot in the water to guard our hearts. Now, the presence of God is always with us. So it's not that we, it's not that God has moved away from us. It's often that we have forgotten our awareness of God's presence. It's more about opening our eyes and ears, as Jesus often said, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see opening our eyes and ears to what is already true for who we are, that we carry that presence with us always. So keep one foot in the water. 
Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That person is like a tree, like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season. Their leaves don't wither. Whatever they do prospers. The person who meditates on the truth of God day and night, it says, plants themselves by the streams of living water. They, everything they do prospers. That sounds like a good plan to me. You know, I mean, I'm not a businesswoman, but I feel like if I were to start a business, I would like everything that it does to prosper. Well, here is like instructions for the spiritual life. If we plant ourselves by living water, everything we do prospers. Now, that word in the Hebrew is really important. That plant word means to actually be planted, like to be picked up like you would in a garden and move your azaleas over here. This is like to be planted, to be picked up and planted. The psalmist is saying you can pick yourself up and plant yourself next to streams of living water. And the man or woman who does that, everything they do prospers. They yield their fruit in due season, planting ourselves near the presence of God. Next, get on the phone and make a call. Getting on the phone and making a call. You know, no Christian has ever been invited to follow Jesus alone. It's just never happened. It's not the plan. It's not the design. Christianity is not a solo sport, but we often make it one, particularly when we're going through times of suffering. One of the things I love about this story of Elijah, which I didn't notice until a few years ago when I was studying it, uh, I realized that Elijah, one of his main complaints is, I'm alone. I've been left alone. But he actually left his servant just a few verses earlier. So it says, Elijah ran for his life. He ran to the wilderness. Oh, he left his servant. And then he kept running and he ran over here. Well, he wasn't alone, but this was his great complaint to God. He had left his servant. He'd purposely chosen not to have company and community and support. And he went off on his own. And don't we do that sometimes in times of suffering? It's actually very Western. It's actually very American and individualistic of us as a culture that when we go through suffering, we often turn off the phone. We often hide away. We don't want to show up to a party. We don't want to, you know, we stay quiet at work. We don't want anyone to know that we have weakness, that we're suffering. But that's not at all the biblical understanding of what it looks like to be community. And in fact, it's not what most of the Christians around the rest of the world do in that same time. So I'm doing my doctorate, as I said, I'm studying Christians in Kenya, and particularly studying Christians in a slum in Nairobi. So these are some of the poorest of the poor, uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to us, and I'm asking them about their theology of suffering. So when they go through suffering, what do they really believe about God? Do they believe God is with them? So they told me stories of their own personal suffering, deep, deep stories of losing children and spouses and violence, experiencing violent injustice. But they're faithful followers of Jesus. So I asked them, where was God in that moment of suffering for you? Did God feel distant? Did God feel nearby? And they all said, oh no, God was with me. Without a doubt, not one said God wasn't with them. All different ages, different denominations, different life stories. They all said, oh no, God was with me. And I said, well, how do you know that? They said, God was in my community. I sensed God in my community. God was meeting me in my community. When we as believers shun community in those times of suffering, we're actually pushing away one of the main ways God shows up in our suffering. One of the main avenues God is sending to help us. 
to comfort us, support us, to help us guard our hearts. Get on the phone and make a call. Remember, community is there because this is never meant to be a solo sport. And lastly, push the mute button. <laughs> when we're going through those times where, uh, those times of, of doubt and fear, it's helpful sometimes to push the mute button until what is coming out of our mouths is faith. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't love our doubts and questions. He does. Job gave him that for like 33 chapters. Uh, he, God loves our doubts and questions, but sometimes we need to help ourselves and we need to push our mute button until that we know that what's coming out is faith until we've had time to fill our tank back up with the truth of who God is, and we're not just sitting in the lies. Elijah, I love, even after God has appeared in his presence, and notice that is God's answer to Elijah when Elijah cries out, God shows up in his presence. He was like, what you need to know is I'm here, so let me show you I'm here. But then even after he's shown up in his presence, he asks him again, what are you doing, Elijah? And Elijah says again, oh, God, you wouldn't believe it. Let me tell you, these guys are after me, and also I'm alone, and also da-da-da. He says the same thing, exact same thing he'd said a few verses before. He's now experienced the presence of God, and all he can do is be like, yeah, like I said before, it's really hard, you know, and all these things are going on. I just want to mute Elijah at that moment. You know, I want to just be like, Elijah, shh, 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 you know, and maybe you've had people in your life, family and friends, this is what family's good for, right? To be like, ooh, zip it, ooh, don't. Stop, stop, what? quit while you're ahead, you know? You want to kind of do that. It reminds me of Zechariah. We often hear the story of Zechariah around Christmas. Zechariah, who had doubts that his wife Elizabeth could bear a child, and so when the angel comes, Zechariah's like, ha, 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 that's not likely. And the angel mutes him. Now, I grew up hearing that the angel was, like, punishing him. But I don't think that's true, one, because I don't think that's God's character. Angels normally show up to help, right? They show up for Elijah to give him food and give him instruction. They show up to help. The angel was showing up to help him, for, like to keep him from himself. <laughs> like, okay, Zachariah, we're just going to mute that just for a little while so that you can actually watch God work, so that you can make space in your mind and your life to watch the miracle of John the Baptist. Because Elijah, you don't know that we need that child. We need John the Baptist to come. He's integral to this whole Jesus thing. He's the forerunner. So he mutes him. And then notice when Zechariah does finally speak, what he speaks is this story of praise and thanksgiving, this beautiful prayer, one of the most beautiful ones in Scripture, of faith. He sings a song of faith. Sometimes we need to push the mute button until what comes out is faith. Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart. I've put it in a special place in my insides, in my center. Scripture says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And don't we know that in our own lives? Haven't we all had those moments, maybe even this morning, where you said something and you went, oh, that wasn't pretty. Where did that come from? What's stored up in your heart this morning? What are you letting into your heart? What are you stuffing your heart full of? That's not a reprimand from Scripture. That's an invitation. What could I put instead into my heart? God's inviting us this morning to fill our hearts with his truth so that we know when the lies come. 
As uh, Paul said, uh, we know each other from London. I'm, uh, I'm an Anglican priest, and I was ordained in the Church of England and served there for seven years. So that's some of the connection of how we first, we first made when uh, Daniel Island first started. And if you've ever been in London, you know there's the subway. It's called the Tube. The Tube. And uh, at rush hour, the Tube is packed. So it's like the worst time to be on the tube is on rush hour because everyone's stuck in there and, you know, no one's looking at each other even though they're like two, two inches from each other's faces. <laughs> so we're all, we're all stuck in there. And the worst thing to happen is you get to a new station and you're already stuffed in there and you're thinking, there is no way. This need, they need to fly past this station. There's no room in here. And you're like, but you know that when those doors open, people are going to stuff themselves in. You know that they're just going to start pushing their way in and try and make space. And sometimes you get to a station and the doors open and the person's just like, there's no room in here for you. You know, and you're like, oh yeah, there is. And people like make space. Well, I think scripture's inviting us to stuff our hearts so full of the truth of who God is and the truth of who we are, that when we come to the station and the enemy says, ooh, but I've got a lie for you, we say, nope, no room. No room in here. It's too full up. It's too full up of the truth of who God is. I've got no room for you in here. That's what it means to, above all else, guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. There is a reality of who God is in our lives, and he's calling us to guard our hearts. You may have heard about South Africa having a water shortage. And uh, in January, I saw a picture on the newspaper of some armed guards standing around the water source. And if you've ever worked in water engineering or traveled around the world, you know that if the source of water gets contaminated, it flows down the river or it flows through the pipes of wherever the water is going. You need to guard that source. And I saw these armed men standing around these sources of water. They'd sent the military out to guard the sources of water so they wouldn't be contaminated or lost around the country. And I had that image of us spiritually guarding our hearts. God is calling us to guard our hearts, not out of fear, but out of wisdom. Because our hearts are precious to him. What lies are you believing this morning? What truths of God can you replace with those lies? That God is faithful. That the joy of the Lord is your strength. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. That he has come to give you life and life abundantly. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that we have nothing to fear in the spiritual battle that goes on around us for our minds, for our wills. But God, you do call us to be wise in that battle. So, Father, even this morning as we come to you and we're thinking about these things that we've let into our heart, perhaps these lies that we're believing, we ask you, God, to come and visit us as you did, Elijah, by your presence. Come and remind us who we really are in you, what it means that your presence lives within us, what it means that we have everything in Christ for life and godliness. Thank you, Father, that we are never alone, that we can always keep one foot in the water and that we always have people we can call to help us through our Christian community. We ask, Lord, you would train us to guard our hearts well, that we might run fully and fast for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank mm-hmm. you.